Bullshit. Pretend for a moment you've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit and full of bold solutions. That's what the No BS Show is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Let's cut the bullshit. In a survey of more than 2,000 consumers, 48% said poor service led them to change companies in the past year. Another study asked respondents to describe their most recent buying experience, and half said they had at least one problem. It seems like we're always hearing, seeing, or reading about customers having terrible experiences. When our service is lacking, what do we tell the client or customer? When we miss an internal deadline or fail to hit a goal, what do we say to our boss? We were crazy busy and things got pushed back. Or insert supposed crisis happened, so I had to spend time fixing it. He was a difficult customer. He was impatient and rude. So-and-so was working on that and I had to wait for her to finish it. Our price was too high, so we lost the sale. And the list could go on. Sometimes legitimate roadblocks keep us from meeting deadlines, being on time, or reaching our goals. However, bosses, peers, and clients are often frustrated and perceive the responses as excuses rather than reality. Why the disconnect? The focus is on the instance rather than the issue. If people are continually disappointed or you regularly miss deadlines, it doesn't matter what happened in the most recent instance. The issue is you don't deliver what you promise. After the fact, time is wasted rationalizing with phrases like, we were crazy busy, and self-improvement opportunities are lost. You obviously need to attempt to fix the instance as soon as possible, but more importantly, you need to concentrate on the issue, the reason why deadlines aren't met, or why client service is lacking, and how to improve in this area. Set clear, specific targets and prioritize activities to achieve goals and meet deadlines. Follow up with your boss, peers, subordinates, and clients regularly to make sure milestones within the action plan are being met. Listen to the customer and provide value-added service or a discount when something doesn't go as well as expected. And stay away from those tired, old excuses. The next time you're asked why something didn't go as planned, take personal responsibility and focus on the issue, not the instance. Our guest today is Kiran O'D, who recently joined Horovitz, Rudoy, and Rotman as a partner in the firm's accounting and auditing group. After leaving HRR in 2002, Kiran spent the past 14 years with BDO, formerly Alpern Rosenthal, most recently as a partner in the firm's assurance and transaction advisory success uh, services groups. Kiran, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the uh, no BS approach, so looking forward to today. Love it. Love it. Well, this should be a fun one. You've come full circle with your t- return to HRR. Walk us through your career background. Go way back to graduating from Bobby Moe and bring us all the way to today. Sure, sure. So I uh, graduated from Robert Morris. It was Robert Morris College then back in 1998. It's come a long way. It's Robert Morris University now. At the time, um, you know, I'm a lifelong Pittsburgher, and when I looked in the uh, colleges here in in in, uh, in the city. Uh, Robert Morris had a, a really good accounting program, um, more so than Pitt at the time. So I, I chose Robert Morris. I went there for four years, graduated uh, with honors, I might add, yeah. and uh, started at Horvitz, Rudolph and Rotman right out of college. I spent about three, three and a half years there. Um, it was a smaller firm at the time, maybe about 40 employees, working a lot with um, family-owned businesses, um, you know, kind of middle market companies, smaller middle market companies. At the time, I didn't know that I wanted to be in public accounting for my entire career. So I wanted to try some different things. And I actually took a job as a consultant. And uh, not to really bore the listeners with uh, accounting 
uh, history, but at that time there was uh, an act came out called Sarbanes-Oxley, which happened um, a lot because of the Enron crisis and the folding of Arthur Anderson. So it was um, a lot of internal control work at large public companies had to be done in order to protect stockholders. So I took a job as a consultant, but I found myself doing a lot of work in that area. And for anyone that knows internal controls, it's pretty boring stuff. So I, I did a project with uh, Alpern Rosenthal, and they offered me a job. And, and so I thought, you know, it was a, a kind of a growing progressive firm. I joined there. Um, still wasn't sure that I wanted to be in public accounting, but I was seeing some different opportunities. So I worked there. The firm really started to grow, uh, became one of the predominant middle market firms in the city. Um, you know, my career kind of progressed very nicely there. I was promoted quickly to manager, senior manager, partner, and was a partner at the firm for four or five years. And then like most you see with a lot of other uh, middle market firms here in Pittsburgh, um, the start of the national kind of consolidation of accounting firms was happening and Alpern Rosenthal merged with BDO. While I was at Alpern, I spent most of my time on the audit side uh, and worked with a lot of private equity companies. So I started to do a lot of transaction work. So when we merged with BDO um, and the national firm's model is more specialist as opposed to generalist. You know, when I was at Alpern, I worked with my clients from everything from audit work through um, you know, mergers and acquisitions, tax work. And at BDO, they wanted us to focus more so on a specialty group. So I joined the Transaction Advisory Services practice. I started that practice here in Pittsburgh. I was the head of that group. And I really enjoyed the transaction work because I got to see a lot of how companies were bought and sold. But I, I missed being more of a generalist. I liked doing a lot of different things uh, with my clients. So in the past where I could um, work with a client, watch them buy an acquisition, see how it was merged into their company, or if they held it and sold it, I would be involved in the dissolution of that organization. On the transaction side of BDO, I was really just helping people buy companies, and then I was off to the next project. So I, I felt like I was losing a little bit of the um, diversity in, in my skill set. So I had been talking, stayed in touch with the partners at Horvitz, Rudolph, and Ropeman uh, over the years and had talked about coming back there. It's um, kind of an exciting opportunity because it's a smaller firm, but it reminds me a lot of Alpen Rosenthal when I started there in that you know we work mostly with middle market companies here in the Pittsburgh area. So we're looking to kind of grow that practice um, and, and build to be more of a predominant middle market firm in this area. Diverse background. One of the things that I often talk about is that the first job, no matter what it is, can be hugely beneficial if you take that approach. And I also talk about enjoying the journey. So talk about the value of going to the smaller firm with your first job out of school as opposed to the bigger firm where you'd have a more structured, do one or two things type of responsibility. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a huge difference. And I've seen you know both sides of the spectrum. It's um, At a smaller firm, you kind of you definitely get more into the details. So for some of these companies, they might not have a sophisticated CFO or a CFO at all. You deal more with directly with the owner of the company. Um, you're working with them on lots of different strategies for maximizing the family wealth, minimizing taxes, the direction of the the company. Um, so, so you're more of a trusted advisor, and you know that that takes time. Obviously, when you start at a smaller firm, you don't you know walk in day one with those expectations, but you do get more involved in. Um, the day-to-day operations of the company and helping them in, in a lot of different uh, avenues. With bigger companies, they have a sophisticated uh, accounting department, a sophisticated CFO. They have their own financial reporting. So you're doing more um, compliance work there. You're helping them 
finish their year-end audit for bank compliance or regulations. You're gathering information for taxes, but you're not as involved in the operations of the company because, like I said, they have those internal resources. So I think you know there's great experiences in both types of firms. I think if you want to work outside of Pittsburgh, sometimes it's better to get the large national firm name so that you can put that on your resume and go forward. You know, I think one of the statistics I saw was that 75% of the people that start in public accounting don't end up in public accounting. It's just, it's a, you need two years of experience to get a CPA license, but it's not necessarily a career for everybody. So some people need to think about where they want to end up to understand where they want to start. So if you want to be at a $100 million local kind of manufacturing company, you're better off starting at a smaller firm. If you're looking to go to the national um, SEC public company, you're better off at a, at a big big four or, or even some of the new national firms in the, in the city. That's great advice. So talk about mid-market because I'll give you my reasoning. I think that each industry kind of defines small, mid, and large a little bit differently. So with the financial firms that we work with and with private equity firms, they describe mid-market in a similar fashion. Can you just walk through that for our listeners, what you would define as mid-market? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. I think you're right. Middle market to people, when you say that, that could mean anything from a company with $10 million in revenue to $500 million in revenue. And so there's really different spaces in the middle market. Middle market generally means um, not a public company, so not something that would be traded on a public stock exchange. It's a privately owned company, meaning it's a family-owned, multi-generational company, or a company that's owned by a private equity fund or a group of investors, or it could even be a small subsidiary, a U.S. subsidiary of a foreign corporation. But those type of companies are what defines middle market. Where you play in that middle market space could, could you know, widely vary from, again, from $10 million in revenue to $500 million in revenue is a huge space. So most people kind of say lower middle market or, or true middle market or upper middle market. I think a, a firm like Horvitz, Rudolph, and Rotman, we're really a lower middle market firm. I mean, our clients are generally based in size anywhere from a few million in revenue up to, you know, some on the top end of 100, 150 million in revenue. But our sweet spot would be probably 10 million in revenue to about 70 million in revenue. Okay. Makes sense. Now, one of the things that is so intriguing to me is the whole private equity space. And I've found that that's an eclectic bunch when you talk to private equity people that they're, they are very broad in their understanding of multiple industries. They're like gamblers in a way, big time risk takers. Talk a little bit about private equity. Yeah, it's a, it's a great space. I think one of the terms that, that you hear all the private equity guys like to say is we're industry agnostic. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Let's cut the BS, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that pretty much means they'll play in any space. I mean, they don't want to do anything in real estate. And, and private equity seems to love manufacturing because there's some tangible assets there that they could leverage. But it is it is the gambler mentality. These are guys that are pretty bright guys, have been to business school, have seen a lot of different things, and, and like to uh, kind of place bets on some of these companies. And you know, there's a lot of financial modeling that goes into it, and they build a lot of cash flow analysis and financial models. But I think there's a lot of intuition. You know, these guys seem to kind of focus in on two or three areas that they really like. And, and at times, you'll see some of the smaller private equity funds really center that around an operator. So if they've had a, a president or a CEO in the past who's been very successful at a certain industry, whether that's metal fabricating or plastic injection molding or any any specific niche, they'll kind of try to focus in that area and buy companies to have that person come in and run them because they what they really like is a proven track record. You know, they like to gamble, but it's not like 
tech companies. You know, there's a big difference. Sometimes people don't understand between private equity and venture capital. Venture capitalists like to make more of the risky bets. You know, they're looking for the startup that could go public or be sold to a public company. But, you know, maybe 60, 70 percent of the money that they put out um, ends up kind of folding up or being used up, whereas private equity is a little more safer. They're probably looking for somewhere between a 20 and 30 percent return every year. So they tend to be in the more traditional markets. They tend to be with more traditional industries. But like you said, they, they do like to get out there and, and put money at risk. Mm -hmm. So you go from HRR to uh, a big one. Alpern Rosenthal, which becomes BDO, and now you're back. Talk about the specifics. You sort of alluded to it uh, in your other answers, but talk about the specifics of what really is compelling to you, what you missed about the smaller company when you were at the bigger company. Part of it is, you know, I'm a Pittsburgh guy. My family was, um, my mom's family was from here. My dad was from Ireland, but met my mom in Spain, and then they came back to Pittsburgh, and he loved it here. And, and so I was born and raised here. I went to college here. My wife, we, I've known my wife since we were 12 years old. Uh, we met in high school. And so I really like Pittsburgh. I enjoy Pittsburgh. And I, and I stayed away from the national firms when I graduated from college because I wanted to stay here. So some of that was geographical. I didn't like as much of the traveling. I didn't like as much of the, not even as much being out of town. You know, if I'm out of town a few days a month, that's not a big deal. Um, but I liked working in the Pittsburgh market with clients here in Pittsburgh. You know, as a professional service provider, most of the marketing we do is personal marketing face-to-face -face contacts with lawyers and bankers and other accountants um, in, that's done in this market. And you know, I, I was getting pulled further and further from the Pittsburgh market. So some of it was a step back to that. And some of it, like I mentioned earlier, was really working with these smaller companies in the form of being a trusted advisor. You know, it's, it's nice to know that when they have a uh, life crisis, whether it's their business or their family, that these people will reach out to you and make you a part of their inner circle. And when you're working with larger companies, that's not really the case. You're more compliance at that point. And the compliance work is, um, it's very heavily regulated. It's also very competitive. It's very fee-driven because people look at it and say, well, you can do an audit. This guy can do an audit. You know, we're the value-add services. And you don't have as much of the value-added services with the larger companies that you can bring to the smaller companies. And you just don't get that personal relationship and personal feeling. I've seen you in meetings uh, when you're doing a quick analysis when people are talking about uh, they're, they're talking about their issue and they're showing you some financials. And you'll very quickly come and make some points. And I liken it to us, say Suzanne, who's here producing the show and myself or other people on my team, the three mics and people like that. If we see something, we immediately like notice certain trends and we can quickly say, here's where we are. I think you are from a marketing, a content standpoint, a strategy standpoint. Tell me a little bit about what happens when you get an issue. Like we've, when we've been together at a meeting and you're quickly seeing something and you'll say, Hey, what about this? What about that? Just talk about how, cause it seems like it gets you juiced. Yeah, I'm smiling as you say that. It's magic, right? And for some people, you know, some people are great at art. Some people are great at music. I, I can't play the piano and you don't want to hear me sing. So for me, it's numbers. And, and you know, it's not, it's not huge math numbers. I never wanted to solve the Pythagorean theorem or, or any of those crazy things. But I like to see the relationships with numbers and I, I view it like a puzzle. So if I look at a set of financial statements or cash flow projections or something like that, I can generally see relationships and where things are missing. So, you know, if sales are way up this year, why is gross profit down or what other relationships or trends happen? Because one thing's going one direction, there should be a natural progression that other things fall in line. And when that's not the case, I kind of like to ask questions and really get in there and, and figure those kind of things out. So it's, it's really a 
kind of building a puzzle with small numbers and relationships, I think, for me. You also mentioned that you're a no BS guy, which I, I agree with. That's why you're on the show. So tell me when you've seen BS in the workplace. It could be an example from your past when it was company culture. It could have been questionable leadership. It could have been poor work ethic, lousy customer service. Just a time when you had to say that's BS. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it's always been for me um, firm leadership. And no matter what firm you're with, I think sometimes they – want to project an image of culture to the market that people don't live um, internally in the firm. And that's where I think it's kind of BS. I've always been a pretty genuine guy. I think anyone who knows me knows that if you ask me a question, you're going to get an honest answer. Whether you really like it or not, you're going to get an honest answer. And my philosophy on that's always been that's the way I am. And if you don't like it, then don't ask the question. So I I think it's pretty much um, just when people project an image externally that they don't live up to internally. I think that frustrates me a lot. Okay, good. I like it. So now let's put you on the spot for real though. Your biggest learning experience. Talk about when maybe you were a BS employee, a tough boss, or maybe your communication wasn't what it needed to be. Looking back, when do you think you might've been guilty of some BS? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. So as part of firm leadership, I think there's been times where I've done that, just as I've explained, you know, whether it was a tight client situation where I had to kind of rally the troops and, and feed them some BS that I didn't necessarily believe. But in order to get a project done or to keep a client happy, um, I've kind of had to sell that internally. Um, to my team where when I went home at the end of the night, I didn't really love what I had said, but it was uh, kind of a heat of the battle thing where we had to get something moved. And so I I think genuine communication is definitely the way to go long-term and to build a great team and to have people follow you. I think, you know, we go, we talk a lot about leadership. You you can't dictate leadership and you can't mandate leadership. You have to be a leader because people want to follow you. And I think when you BS them, then they they don't they don't look up to you anymore. They lose that respect for you. They you, you lose that edge, and just because your title mandates it, these people don't won't necessarily follow you. So I think you know in those times where I've had to BS employees, I've always kind of looked back and 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 felt bad about you know doing that. Well, I think that having experienced the same thing, what happens from my standpoint to me is like when I was in a place where I thought I had to do that repetitively it was when I had to get out because I agree with you there's times that you just kind of have to say certain things like for instance if you're you know I often refer back to sports analogies but as a coach you know if we're down 17 points I have to BS the guys a little bit and say we can come back and win this if we can cut it to 10 by the four minute mark okay that's not a BS but it sort of is I mean you're losing by 17 so the same thing happens in the workplace where if you have to do that from time to time it's okay but when it's a long-term thing is when you kind of probably have to go. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So when you were at uh, BDO, was uh, was that infrequent that you felt you had to do that, or did you feel you had to get a little bit more on the cultural side trying to sell a culture? I, I think definitely more so with BDO. Um, and, and it's just a difference in philosophy, right? And maybe it's, maybe it's the way that they like to do things, um, but there's a difference in the – uh, culture and the philosophy of a national firm compared to a local firm. And I think that probably was part of the reason that led to my wanting to, to, to move on to something else. I think, you know, you have a, na- a national culture that that's rolled out and it's kind of dictated down by um, the hierarchy, which doesn't happen to be in our market. 
So you have instances where you have to kind of rally the troops and you don't necessarily believe the message. And I, I think that started to become clear towards the end for me anyway. Um, and it's not that it was a bad message. It just wasn't one that I wanted to get behind. And it has to do with the difference between being a local firm and being a national firm and, you know, working on policies that, that might benefit the firm um, globally weren't necessarily great for the Pittsburgh market. And that's hard to swallow. And that's hard to stand up on stage sometimes and, and you know, go through the core values and all those if you're not really behind them. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Well, the show is the No BS Marketing Show, and I love the fact that you call it the No BS Show because really it is about leadership and communication, but we do have to cover a little bit of marketing or else I'd be a BS. <laughs> so I often talk about our definition of marketing, and Suzanne and Mike Gaddy and I just came from a meeting where we were talking about this, and we're passionate about it, and it's, it's our biggest cross to bear is explaining what we believe is real marketing, and it wasn't built by us. It wasn't like, oh, let's go write this and say this is real marketing. It's what real marketing is taught at Harvard, Princeton, at Pitt, wherever, at Robert Morris. And it's talking about clearly defining your target markets, finding out what they want through marketing intel. And when you learn what they want, what they really want through true marketing intel, you have to be willing to change your products and services to give them what they want, when and where they want it at a price they're willing to pay and then tell them about it again and again. And Suzanne made a great point today, and she said how people get really, really excited when you show them how they're gonna tell them about it again and again. And they'll buy that piece from companies. But if the company wasn't a no BSer and didn't do that marketing intel, if the marketing firm didn't do the marketing intel and didn't listen and didn't come back and try to convince the company to change their product or service where they had to, but just did that last part of telling them about it again and again, that's BS marketing. And that's a disservice that Suzanne and Mike and everybody else in my company are more passionate about. We want people to respect marketing the way they do finance, the way they do IT, the way they do legal. And right now that's not the case. So we're passionate about that. So now that you've heard that kind of different definition that goes beyond the just telling them about it again and again, it starts off with talking to the customers, defining that target market, doing the marketing intel, changing when you have to, changing maybe your location of how you give it to them, and then telling them about it again and again. Talk about when you think you applied that definition and had a marketing or messaging success. Uh, I think marketing is a little bit different depending on the industry that you're in. In a professional services industry, you're definitely doing marketing as an individual. You're marketing yourself first, and then you're marketing the firm. So you're talking about your expertise and then the expertise within your firm. But that messaging is is a little more difficult because the audience could be so broad. And so, you know, being an accountant, I'm, I'm kind of in the box most of the time. And so sometimes I struggle with how do we market an accounting firm because we can't just and then there's also financial constraints, right? So we can't just put up billboards all over town and say, if you're in an accident, call Egger Schneider. You know, it's a little bit different from an accounting perspective. You really have to earn the trust of a client if you're going to be that personal business advisor. So it's spending the time to develop these those personal relationships. And I think what that means is 
them getting to know you and getting to understand your expertise. And and sometimes that's difficult because, Dave, when we go to the doctor, do you ask the doctor a bunch of questions about where he went to medical school and w- whether he graduated at the top of his class or bottom of his class? Not really. You just expect that he's a doctor <laughs> with a medical degree. And to some extent, people expect that from accountants. But in order to get past that, where you're not just a compliance person and you're not just checking the box on their tax return, but to become that, that trusted advisor, you have to, to really market yourself so that they understand that you have a special expertise and can help them. So where I've really spent a lot of my time is is in building my professional network. And that's something that I've always looked at as doing as much for my job as I do for myself. And because, you know, I've changed firms, but I, I'm able to take that. That's an asset that I have. I'm able to take that network with me. Um, and, and even in my personal life, if there's times where I have um, wanted to buy a house and wanted to talk to a mortgage broker or uh, my son's in college and was looking for an internship. Having that professional network is um, good both personally and in your career. So I think from a marketing perspective, from a from a professional service firm, it's a lot of one-on-one contact points. But I think your 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 comments were, were right spot on. You have to build those, uh, be able to show people what you've done and tell them what you've done and they have to buy in and believe that. It's just that it comes from a different medium than it would for a products company or a, um, you know, a large services company where you have a, a great marketing budget. So um, I, I think for us, there's a lot of constraints as accountants. You don't want to get out and tell that story. Um, more introverted type people. So I think you know, really building that network um, and, and building it around your expertise more so than, than just knowing people. You want people to know you, but you want them to know you for the right reason, that you're the preferred service provider to X companies or that you're the um, preferred tax accountant in certain situations. So, so it's really that building that expertise that's difficult. Suzanne will have to uh, tell the creative team we have to scrap the first creative design we did, which was Kieran on a billboard saying, no charge unless we improve EBITDA for you. <laughs> right. So, so you were pointing and in, in improving EBITDA. So we're going to scrap that. Oh, my, my, my partners might not have loved yeah. that one. So where, where I think you hit the nail uh, is this. Why you are doing the definition is the first thing you've done is you clearly defined who you want to go out and talk to when you're building that network. And then when you talk to them, you were asking them a lot of questions to find out what they want and how your service might apply to what they want or what their friends want. And then you were tweaking your service wherever you had to and then telling them about it again and again. So I believe that that's a great answer because it shows how in that personal services industry, you're not going to go out and do a big full-scale research project necessarily and go and do a big branding campaign that's seven figures. But what you're going to do is still talk to key people to find out what they want, still do some intel, and then help your messaging and go out and do those individual one-on-one relationships. Definitely. And I think one of the things that's always been big for me is, is again, going back to the being genuine. You know, being genuine when you're talking to prospective clients, being genuine when you're talking to referral sources or other professionals, and also helping them. There's a lot of times where I meet people that might have a question that I can't answer, but instead of just saying, well, I can't answer that, you got to be helpful and, and point them in the right direction connect them with another friend or another colleague that might be able to answer that question for them. And even though there aren't any fees in it for us, those people remember that. People always remember, people remember you helping them more than you providing a service. So, you know, being a part of the the professional community here is important to me. Helping others and being genuine, I think, is the big things for me in, in my personal marketing. So, Kieran, how can listeners contact you if they would like to learn more about what you do? Oh, definitely. So you can email me at k 
O-D-E-A at HRRCPA.com or check us out on our website. We uh, will be launching a new website shortly and that's HRRCPA.com. Um, and I appreciate being on the show today, Dave. Thank you for being on the show and thanks to our listeners for joining us for the No Bullshit Marketing Podcast. Visit nobullshitmarketing.biz, B-I-Z, for show notes plus additional marketing and messaging resources. Are you signed up for light reading? You'll receive valuable strategies every other week to improve your marketing and build your content. It really is light, intended to be read in two minutes or less, and it just might trigger bright ideas for you. To sign up, visit masssolutions.biz. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions, no BS.